Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We talk to newly crowned BRDC British F3 champion Inam Ahmed and take a look at the big stories in the world of club motorsport. Welcome to another episode of the Autosport Podcast. This is a special Club Autosport edition in association with sister title Motorsport News. So we're going to talk a little bit about, well, what we call Club Motorsport, although really it's kind of national level motorsport. And one of our main focuses is going to be on junior single-seater racing. So this is where all the teenage drivers who will hopefully be racing in Formula One one day are making their name. And we've got one of the best of them joining us as our first guest, Enam Ahmed, who is BRDC British F3 champion. Congratulations on the, on your triumph, sealing the title uh, last month, I think it was at, at Snetterton. So what now? Presumably that's one step on the road to F1. So step up a few more years, you'll be winning world championships in well, no time. I'm looking to stay in, in Formula 3, as I think probably a lot of people know. Um it's just a matter of where and when I go. The only problem is it's great racing in England because some of the tracks in the UK are really good for teaching drivers. Generally, some of the best drivers in the world do come out of Britain, like Hamilton of Norris, like a lot of really good drivers. So now my, my hardest challenge will be learning European tracks. So that's going to be one big thing I'll need to know for next year. But F3 is at a bit of a sticky situation at the moment because in 2019, they're changing, changing the car. 
and uh, the change in the format. A lot of people like myself, a lot of drivers that I'm friends with that um, I know who were of the same age group, we're qu- at quite a sticky situation at the moment. We don't know whether to move up straight away or maybe wait the end of the new F3. Because if you were to do a two-year program, it, it wouldn't make sense that they're going to change the car. So um, I'm hoping to stay in an F3 car, I'm trying to get the budget together to do it. I had my first test last week with Carlin and um, it went really, really well. So we're going to see how it goes. I'm really excited, yeah. So in short, you will be winning the World Championship a few years down the line. Oh, well, <laughs> well actually, to be honest, uh, I've always been a, a guy that takes things one step at a time. Actually, a lot of drivers say that, but I, I, the reason why I take it one step at a time is because I actually don't dream of winning a Formula One World Championship because it's so far away. Like, it's not even, like, in the cards for me. When I go to sleep at night, what I dream about winning is what I'm currently racing. So now my dream is to win the European F3 Championship. When I go to sleep, what I dream of is seeing my dad on the pit wall cheering me on all the team and me crossing the flag at, at Hockenheim or whatever, winning the title. Like That's my dream. To me, winning the European F3 title, even winning a race in European F3, would be the same feeling as winning a, a Grand Prix in Formula 1. That's my dream. That's an excellent way of looking at it, and that's one of the reasons why you'll probably make some good progress over the next few years. So, you know, Ahmed, a, a name to listen out for. So we'll uh, we'll speak to you a little bit more about, about your progress and your season shortly. I'll bring in our other guests. First, we have Jack Cousins. Hello there. International editor of autosport.com. You've been in and around BRDC British F3 this year, keeping an eye on things. And also you've waited something like 18 months to make your make your podcast debut. It, that's, I think that's the most noticeable thing here is that uh, after you know a few failed attempts at, at getting on the podcast, I've, I've finally made the cut. You, d- you did have to sit in a room in a farmhouse next to the podcast because you didn't have enough microphones. Yeah, I went all the way to France to do that as well. Well, I'll also introduce our final guest, Jack Benyon, the group editor of Autosport, Motorsport News. It's all very complicated. Basically, he ha- he has two jobs, so effectively he's across Autosport and Motorsport News, so he does probably more than twice the work of the rest of us. I've been doing jobs since September 2016 now, and I'm still not entirely sure what I do for a living. Exactly. We're not sure what you do either, but, uh, but we like to say you do, you do a lot. But obviously... You've got quite a broad view of all this junior single-seaters thing. And in fact, some of the things that Enam was saying about winning F3 and then stepping up to F3 shows some of the complications that are that are in this world. Absolutely. There's so many directions young drivers can take now. There's uh, obviously a lot of head towards GT and, and, and doing things in, in, in Europe like that. Or some of them do stick to the single-seater route for as long as they can and, and, and see what they can achieve. So always a very d- difficult decision for these drivers. Um, obviously, there's a, a high level of cost involved in, in stepping up to these European championships. And it's it's difficult for people like Enam to, to raise that kind of budget. It's always a difficult decision to choose where you're going to go when you're investing so much, so much of your time and money in these in these situations. And sometimes it's it's a it's a one or a two year shot for these guys. And if they make the wrong call, then you know that can be the end of their career. And we've seen it happen so many times with so many young British drivers and drivers from all around Europe as well. So it's uh, it's kind of a key point in their in their careers to make that decision. And I can understand why Enam's finding it difficult to, to kind of commit to what he's going to do next year. Well, let's start off looking back a little bit at the season before we get Enam's to tell us about his his brilliant season. Let's ask Jack what you think of. Of what you've seen from me now obviously he's won 12 out of 21 races held so far which is a, a pretty formidable record in a competitive championship but what have you seen from him can you give your honest assessment so you can either put a big smile on his face or make him run away screaming i'm open for the criticism <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 well let's let's see how how far this monologue goes the first time i spoke to you was on the podium at donnington at the end of last year so you started off the 2016 season obviously pretty strongly led the championship after the first round and i think you've kind of not regressed to a natural level but those who had more experience in cars that's not well you know you know it won't get worse than that but those who had more experience in in car racing in single seaters worked their way to the top and you obviously still in that competitive pack at the front but wins and podiums were a bit more difficult to 
to come by and one of the one of the things that was particularly impressive was on that podium there i mean i've got the quote in front of me you know you said at the time you were adamant that you were going to do another season in in british f3 and that immediately struck me as something particularly mature about you as a as a driver because you were 16 at the time and there were drivers i think maxwell springs to mind uh ready moved up to euro formula open and vidi nathan as well who had done that year in british f3 and then moved on beyond it you had this goal in mind that you wanted to win the championship and obviously you impressed in the first year worked hard enough and, and were fast enough to catch the the eye of a team as formidable as, as Carlin for the the winter series and then really your performance there because let's not forget you've you've won two championships in that car now because you won the the autumn trophy title I don't know may, maybe you can come in on this but how how far did your autumn trophy success go towards getting you a seat with Carlin for the for the full season well actually it started I started talking to Trevor back in um I think it was the second to last round, which was at Snedderton. Oh, so yeah, so same as it was when I just won the title. So same time last year, actually. Yeah. When I first ever met Trevor Carlin. Quite a scary guy. And then, uh, so, um, I, I'm actually, I was introduced because I have a driver coach called Roberta Streit. And he's, he's race F3. A good single-seater driver yeah, in his own he's, right. He's, yeah, yeah. He's the reason why I got where I am today, like to this level. So he's been behind me. For me to do well next year, um, I need to be with the best team. That was with Carlin. And Roberta introduced me to Trevor. And then we started talking from there. And then I just had to finish off the season with Douglas. Wayne did a really good job for me. There was only like literally four guys, five guys, like in the whole team. One engineer between two drivers, me and Thomas Randall. And then um, Wayne was team manager and kind of like driver coach. And then, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a nice little team. It, it shows actually how good racing can be at a national level. And it probably reminds, it reminded me of when racing was simple back in the day you know at a club level so it's a really nice team and it was run with Wayne and his dad Richard who was really good um so I met Trevor and then after the last race I really wanted to to sign with Carlin because I do believe they're the best team um so I didn't really have the money to do it but Trev gave me a shot he gave me one test and he's like if you do well in this test then you can do the Auden Trophy with us at least so it was at Snedderton which I'm good at anyway and then I had a set of tyres in the morning one set of tyres in the morning I had to do the job and then I did, I did the job and he was really, really happy and went really well. And, and I beat the pole time that was set the weekend before. And then it went on from there. So Trevor's like, we'll get a testing program and then you can do the Auden Trophy with us. And then it all started from there. A lot of drivers after what Max Verstappen did are all jumping in way too quickly. I think the best example of someone who didn't move up till he's ready is probably the best driver currently out in Formula 1 at the moment, which is Lewis Hamilton. He did two years in every category. Uh, the only time he did one year was when he won... GP2 in his first year, which was pretty incredible. But by that time, I think because he got such a good foundation um, of driving, doing two years of Renault, two years of Formula 3, and he knew how to dominate a championship, which is what Ron Ron Dennis wanted him to do. It was pretty remarkable what he did in GP2. A lot of drivers now, they're just jumping in 15, 16, like, you know, boom, boom, going straight into a high premium championship without, like, a, a foundation level of driving. And I think that's why... You know, it's kind of hit and miss with them. That's the reason why I stayed in another year. I need, I needed to win a car championship. Um, I needed to learn my craft. There's no point moving up until I didn't master what I was already driving. And then, and then yeah, then I, then I had Roberto Strite as a driver coach. And then we pushed really hard over the winter to get ready. And then we put everything, we sacrificed a lot, put everything we had into this season. And I knew that for me to be able to race next year, it was not a matter of winning two, three races in a year and winning the championship. I had to kill them. So it, for me, every time I go on the track, it was more of a do or die situation because I knew I would don't have the money to compete next year. 
So I really had to prove that I was that much better than everyone else. If you look the way I test every time I go out, I always, well, me and Roberta have this saying, we, we always go out, we have to taste blood. So we drive with a gun. I drive with a gun to my, to my chin every time, you know, it's always got to be on the edge. It's either do or die for me. That's why every time I, I made sure I wanted to demoralize them. Does it make a difference when you go from being a driver who has some good results? So clearly, previous years you knew you were you were good, but then going into this environment, you've got the theoretically the best team. You've got all the machinery, the experience, the opportunity to, as you put it, kill them every time. But when you go from being a driver who has some good results to one who's relentlessly doing it, does that feel different? Some drivers say it starts to come easier when they've got that level of mastery. I, I've always wanted that because when when Vettel I'm actually quite a big history Greek geek in, in racing. When Vettel won every race, nearly every race in Formula BMW, I was talking to Roberto, my coach. I was like, so guys like that, is it easy? Like, is it, you know, when it looks that easy, is it easy? He's like, no, man, you have to push like hell. You have to be on it every session. And then if you look at the start of the season when some people were quicker than me, that's when I thought it was going to be easy. But then after that, I started pushing like hell, uh, you know, and every time I come out of the car, I'm like sweating. And that's when I know I've done a good job. Um, but it reminded me of when I dominated what I did in karting. So I've actually already had experience of dominating a championship because in karting, I was pretty okay. You know, I, I, I won quite a lot of stuff. I knew how to lead races. I knew how to get poles. I, I knew how to race top guys in European and world karting level. Um, it was only a matter of uh, transferring that into cars. It took me longer than some people. Um, but that was, I'm not going to give excuses. It was due to different situations. But I was so determined to end up getting back on top where I believe I should be. That um, I'm happy I was able to finally do that. So, um, yeah, um, it reminds me actually a lot in 2014 when I won the World and European Go-Karting Championship. So it's just slightly different in a racing car because it's a lot more scary. But, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Jack Cousins, did you see the opposition being demoralised? One point was earlier this year at Snetterton, so not the most recent one, but where obviously you claim the championship. Obviously, before the start of the season... We were billing yourself and, and Toby Sauer, who was also on for a second year as, as the favourites for the title. And Toby obviously was leading the first race of the season and then you know, you, you put a bit of pressure on him and ended up winning the first four. And it took him a little while after that to, to recover. And Snetterton was the first sign that he was might work his way back into the championship hunt. And I remember a couple of times, first race and third race, he got close to you and I just spoke to him after the podium uh, on both occasions because he ended up finishing I think behind yourself and James in race one and then on your tail in race two and it was by quite some way it was the best performance he'd put in that year and he just looked you know almost as if he was beaten by that point because he was absolutely on the limit and and was still really struggling to keep up with you and actually once you got your tyres up to temperature in in the third race in particular you were able to pull away. What do you make of of the field and the opposition that that you have really obliterated this year, because last year you had your Leists, your Collards, you know, a couple of older drivers like like Thomas Randall, who are a bit more experienced as well. That was that was a really good competitive field. This year, you've got yourself and Toby. You've still got drivers like Callan O'Keefe, who's got plenty of experience in single seaters. You know, you've got people like James Paul, like Cameron Das, who are up-and-coming young drivers. But do you think the field's been any easier? Not to take away from your achievement this year, but how, how do you sort of assess the, the level of competition that you faced this year? Looking at the grid committee to last year, it has shrunk. Last year, there was a lot of experienced drivers because it was a new championship, so everyone was excited, so everyone joined. This year, I say the competition at the front's the same, but there's just less drivers 
of the same level, if that makes sense. Like, if you go to, for example, if you go to Formula Run in Euro Cup, you have, like, top 15 guys all at the same level. That's why it's so damn close. But in British F3, because it's a national series, there's less drivers. The reason why I pushed so hard this year, for me to be able to get ready for the assault and the war that is European F3, I had to push myself so hard, like, with everything. So it was actually, the fight was not really with anyone else this year. Uh, It was actually with myself. Roberto, my coach, he's really big on that. So he was so hard on me this year. And even when I was pole, like, it's not by big enough margin. It's got to be more, 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 more. And, you know, it's so intense. But he said, look, if you want to get ready for the war that is F3, you have to be at that level. So... I, I suppose that's why you can say it looked quite dominant because the benchmark for me was never my teammates or what I had on the data. It was always what was in the in my mind and how I handled myself and how I had to, me searching for more time. If you look at some categories, the experienced guy who are in the second year, they start off really good, but then they kind of they kind of tail off throughout the year. Well, with me, I started off okay, but then I just got better and better and better as the year went on because I just keep pushing myself harder and harder and harder. I mean, um, four four wins from the first four races is yeah, probably yeah. a little bit better than okay. But, <laughs> but then um, Cameron Das actually caught me up. He was quicker than me at Rockingham. Uh, he, he was really quicker than me. From then, I knew I had to up my game a lot more. And then ever since then, I've just been progressing faster and faster. The fight was has always been within myself. So um, it's all about getting ready for war next year. You know, <laughs> I think it's worth bringing Jack Benyon in here now just to give us a little bit of, of help with the geography of it. Because obviously, there's a lot of F3 terms being thrown around here. BRDC F3, it's not really F3 in the traditional sense. But they are quick cars. It used to be called F4, but at no point has it been FIA F4. So we've got this strange situation where we're talking about stepping up from BRDC F3 to European F3, but which would indicate they're they're the same thing basically, which they're kind of not. So it's worth just giving people a bit of a feel for exactly what this kind of new landscape is because it's changed a lot over the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the you know the British F3 we've got now, um, we've got Tata chassis rather than the Dallara that's used in, in European F3 and obviously the you know the engines are not producing the same amount of power so we've got a, a slower formula if you like so we've got more of a, a single make style championship that's, that's currently in place in the UK. In the European F3, we've got the Dallara chassis, but we've got different engine suppliers and it's a, it's a little bit more open. So as a championship, it's become more separated in the sense that you used to be able to do British F3, which would be very similar to the European F3 series. So I guess it would be less of a step up to go straight from the you know the old British F3 to the to the European F3. I think the problems that were there obviously were, were cost. Um, you know the teams are finding it hard to find the people to to come and do the championship in its in its old guys, um, similar to the current European F3. Um, so the you know the, the change to to F4 was a cost one in in most part I would say that sort of made it more of a single make championship and allowed them to monitor the cost a little bit better and, and bring those costs down and 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 that's why that's one of the things you need at national level sometimes is just that that sort of change that that brings costs down and, and makes things more manageable for people what that does mean is for people like Enam who who come in and, and dominate a championship like that they've now got a bigger step to make towards the European F3 championship because of the you know the things we talked about there's you know the aero, the aero is greater there's you know there's more power from the cars i suppose that'd be a good time to ask you about your your F3 test really because we we're quite lucky that Enam Tested a tested a European F3 car last week, so you know it's, it, it'd be good to get some of some of your thoughts on how much of a step up it is now from from that current car that you've been driving this year, the F3 car, towards the you know the more European car. To be honest, actually, the breaking points, driving style references are all the same. It just feels like you're arriving with a lot more speed. So actually, give due credit to BRDC F3. When I drove it, it was actually quite similar. Like the way you brake. The way you handle the car in FIF3 is very similar to BRDC. I actually think it's good that they 
done this national level with British F3 because I think the jump from F4 to FI is huge. Like that's like way too big. Like the F4 driving style is so much. Sl- it's like t- F4 is even 10, 10, 11 seconds off a British F3 car, and a British F3 car is like another four seconds off an FIA car. So that's pretty weird. So I think it's good that they've got a good national level. And don't forget, like British F3 is a quarter or like a fifth of the cost of doing an FIA season. So it is really good. But yeah, so the car. Honestly, in a straight line, it's not that impressive. I actually think, from what I've heard from drivers, British F3 is quicker in a straight line because it has a lot less drag. But the cornering's pretty insane. But it's not as big of a, of a step up as I thought it would be. But the hardest thing is going into the details, which is where you have the amazing drivers, like, you know, like the, the Norrises, the, the Rosenquists, you know, the Strolls, like what they're very good at. The, the, the biggest fight is not really... Um, finding that half a second or, or that second is finding that last two, three tenths, you know, with how close FI3 is. It was not too difficult getting up, up to a certain speed, but to find the last two, three tenths, I think will be the hardest fight. And when it comes to the the next step, you mentioned the the problem with stepping up to European F3 with everything changing. The obvious steps at the next level are either GP3 or F3. GP3 is going to disappear. They're kind of being consolidated. So there is this rather awkward thing that there's no... There's no sensible step. You've just happened to have arrived at the wrong time. At a national level, uh, Britain is one of the best countries for racing, in go-karting and in car racing, um, which I think why really good drivers come out of Britain. Only downside to that is that I don't know any of the European tracks. Obviously, if I was going to FI next year, the testing program that, that I've got is not many days and then all in England. It's kind of going to be a really hard situation. I'm not even allowed to test um, on the tracks that I'm going to race that next year. And I'll have to learn the tracks on a Friday. And that's like majority of the tracks, um, except for Spa. So it's had a really sticky situation at the moment. If, if it was, I suppose, a normal, you know, if F3 was going to stay the same for the next 10 years, I'd be good because I could do a two-year program. But it wouldn't make sense doing a two-year program now because they're going to completely change a car. So it'll be like jumping into another whole different category. So there's a lot of drivers like at my age group, like myself, that I know we're all at this kind of level from Renault, British F3, F4. If we do FI, F3 next year and we're not at a competitive level of winning, we'll have to do a second year. But then we'll, obviously, like I said, if you do a second year, it's a new car. So a lot of people are thinking of either holding back a year or doing something else and do the new F3 in 2019. It's quite a difficult situation, but it might be a stage where I spend a year trying to learn the tracks and then come into 2019 when I'm ready knowing the tracks, and then do it. Otherwise, because FI3 is probably one of the hardest things you can do before F1. It's like fair to say. It's like the hardest thing other than F2. If you could, if I'm going to go there not knowing the tracks, I'm going to get slaughtered. You know, <laughs> it's, just, you know it's going to be hard. You only get like 40 minutes on a Friday to learn the tracks, and you're against the best drivers in the world. I mean, it's fair enough learning a track in British F3 when you've got like three, four guys at the same level as you. But then when you've got like 15 guys who are amazingly good, they're going to eat me alive. So it's going to be difficult. And how how much more difficult does that decision of yours become when you factor in the the budget that's needed yeah. for for European F three? Because you know your alternatives, say Formula Renault, it's still quite expensive on its own. But you know you're talking northwards of of half a million for for a sort of minimum European F three yeah. budget. That's the thing. Um, because I haven't got the budget, it means that when I do F three, I have to do I have to do well in the first year. Because um, I wouldn't be able to afford to do it to two years, um, but then going back on that, what's the point of wasting five hundred thousand on a season when um, if you're not going to do well? I'd rather spend less money, prepare, and then when you do have, you know, when you do have the one shot, which is Judgment Day in F5 F3, um, you're ready and you're there to do the job. 
we're selling our house. Like my parents sold everything to try and get me to do F3 next year. And I don't want to, and I've got little, and I've had to get little sponsors here and there, but obviously the, the money is crazy. So um, I don't want to uh, waste their money and, and, and the sponsor's money and I don't do well. So now I'm thinking of uh, different situations on maybe having trying to learn tracks and things like that. So I'll be more ready when, when I do do it. Because F5-3 is, is a kind of tough category where you have to be good in the first year. It's no point. You can do two years and still win in the second year. But if you're bad in the first year, it's kind of a waste of a lot of money. You know, So it's better to be ready. What we've just talked about there about the budget and stuff must make Euro Formula Open quite a bit more attractive because in the past maybe that's not been uh, that's not been considered in the in the ladder of sort of getting to where you want to go in terms of single seaters and, and raising through the levels, but with them having a, a spec Toyota engine and the Dallara chassis, um, I suppose that's you know it's going to be cheaper to do that than it's going to be to do a, a year of FIA European F3 like you say, and also you're going to get a bit more testing time on the tracks with with that championship, aren't you? So do you think we could see a sort of I wouldn't call it a migration, but some guys like you your age who maybe not quite sure what to do next, going to Euro Formula Open and maybe giving that a bit of a shot for the, just for the, purely for the testing reasons more than anything. It's worth mentioning that Euro Formula Open is effectively F3. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. just another one of these confusions yeah, yeah. that's been created. <laughs> so, yeah, so I just turned 17 this year and, I'm, and uh, I'll still be 17 going into next year. From what I've been told, I've still got a lot of time. No, not a lot of time. I've got some time in my hands to manage. But yeah, it's definitely on the cards, Euro Formula Open. I'm taking all options in. I've still got a very open mind for next year. But, you know, um, it's very good because I'll get to learn the tracks and it's like half the budget of of FI3. So, yeah, I think I think it's a really good championship. And there's a lot of drivers, actually, that I know who are really good drivers who are considering doing that and doing F3 in 2019. The only reason why people are going to do it next year is because of the, what's happening with F3. And I think next year could be the strongest grid Euroformula Open has ever had, purely because of the situation F3 is in. But, yeah, so Euroformula is good because I'll learn all the, the tracks. If I was to come into F3 in 2019, um, I'll be more ready. But now, you know, my full focus is FIF3. That's still the goal for next year. But um, I'm definitely considering, like, all options. You switched teams for F3 this year. So, and the test you've done in, so far in the F3 car has been with Carlin. Are there any alternatives for next year? Or do you very much see yourself being with, with Trevor's team again? Well, I'm, I'm considering all alternatives. But I'm, I really like Trevor. I really like what he's done for me this year. Obviously, I've tested with him. The car's really good. It's been really good for Lando. I'm really happy. I'm really integrated into the Carlin family. You know, I work in you know I work in the workshop with them every week. I always go once a week to the workshop. I work on my own car. I know everything about my own car. Um, I work with the mechanics. They call me work experience kid because I go there from eight thirty till five, and and I do do it every week. Um, so I'm part of the family, and I'm really happy there. I like working with English people, English people, English engineers, English mechanics because obviously I'm English myself. So. Um, you know, it's really good. I'm happy. You mentioned the kind of time being on your side. Do people get concerned about the age? Obviously, you mentioned people like Max Verstappen coming in. Obviously, Lance Stroll was on the front row at the age of 18. And well, we could say you're a year younger, although he's almost 19. So it's, it's a little bit more than that. But does that create other pressures in terms of people being impatient and unrealistic? Because I always look at it as it doesn't really matter if a driver arrives in F1 at 17, 20, 23 what matters is what level they've achieved and have they had that sensible grounding. Is there a concern in your mind that you could get to 20 and be doing F3 or trying to get into F2 and think, people think, oh, he's over the hill, too old. If he was any good, he'd have mastered it by now. Do well, those pressures yeah. come in? A lot of drivers actually ruin their careers from jumping up too quick to try and keep up with the Verstappen thing. A lot of people now are starting to realise that they're not a Verstappen. And I think some people need to realise what's best for them. I know what's best for me. I'm I'm not a Verstappen, I'm not a Norris, I'm an Ahmed, and I have to do what's best for me. 
you know, Hamilton didn't get into F1 till 22. You know, he was ready. You know, it's different going to F1 and having a year of learning. And it's different going to F1 when you're there already. This guy was fighting Alonso in his first year. Like, who the, who the hell predicted that? Like, that was pretty amazing. And that, he was actually the reason why I got into racing anyway. That, that year inspired me. But anyway, you know, I have to do what's best for me. I'm taking my time. And I think I've still got age on my side, just on 17. Understand the different options I've got. And then do what's best for me and prepare myself as best as I can. Because um, I'm not willing to rush into anything and make a decision on emotion um, and ruin my career. I'd rather think about it logically. Uh, from the outside and understand what's best for me and I think it's better like look at actually look at George Russell um, look he's the best example look he won British F4 did two years in F3 yeah he didn't win but he wasn't with the best team um, and now you know Mercedes saw his ability they you know they he's got experience and now he's gone in his first year he's done a load of car racing now and he's winning no one cares that he's 19 no one really cares that he's 19 he's, it's as long as he's winning I think as long as you're winning what you're doing Obviously, if you do something for four or five years and you're winning, then that's a bit too much. But, you know, as long as you're winning, I don't think people really care. Because if you look at how many people at the moment, they're young and they're not winning. Yeah, the only card they've got to play is, yeah, oh, I'm the youngest on the grid. Okay, so it's not very good if you're finishing, P- if you're finishing P15, is it? You know, if you're, if you're the winner, that's all people care about. Um, and I think um, that, that's a mistake a lot of drivers make. They try and be the youngest on the grid, keep moving up. But they're not winning, so who really cares? I wouldn't pick a driver if I was a, if I was Toto Wolff. I wouldn't pick a driver just because he's the youngest. If I'd pick the driver who's maybe a year or two older, but who's dominating the championship, like Russell is in GP three. It's forcing some young drivers to give up too early. I think you know yeah. we're getting to we're getting to a point where you know you have got these. I don't want to refer to Max Verstappen as a freak of nature, but in in some ways he you know he he's probably, an outlier, he, he, he probably is given what he's doing. So to see these guys like Max Verstappen and, and and Lando Norris doing what they're doing now is obviously very impressive. But at the same time, you know we've got lots of late bloomers in in motorsport who have proved that they can do it with a bit more time. And you know we've seen people like Jolian Palmer who's had that budget and needed to do a bit more work in some of the you know the lower formulas and and, and did a lot in GP2 before he actually won the championship. Um, and you know he's he's not had the the best year in Formula One this year, but you know has proven at times that he he does he does deserve to belong there and has got the ability to be there. So I think you know it is it is sad in a certain way to see people looking up at at Lando and and Max and 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 think oh you know I'm 19 I'm I'm too old to to go up the ladder now which is which is pretty sad and why it's really refreshing to hear from Ian Am that you, if you do what's good for you and and you do what you know you can do and what you can you know because you've got to take into account budget you've got to take into account that championships change every year like we're seeing now with F3 and and what that's going to do you know in the next few years um, and I think it's really important for each driver to take their situation and develop in the way that they think is possible because just because someone like Lando Norris has, has got to where he is now, you know, for every Lando Norris is a Jolian Palmer. So I think it's really important that each driver sort of takes his takes his time and, and, and evaluates his certain situation. Connected to that, one thing I would like to ask is what kind of support network have you got around you? Because obviously seen a lot of junior drivers over the years and there's plenty who do subscribe to the step up as quickly as possible. Uh, kind of thing but quite often that's those around them putting the pressure on it's kind of right you've got to make the step you've got to make the step but is this kind of your own thing or is does this come from driver coach is it a family thing how how do you kind of achieve what i would say is probably is quite a mature outlook um, on what you're doing well i never really had any managers so i just managed myself so i was well i was a person i was mainly doing the deal with trevor i like i do everything i handle everything myself i don't have a manager i approach people myself um you know, like with sponsors, like trying to get the sponsors, you know, I was busting my balls all of last year to try and get sponsors for this year. And, you know, it was little sponsors here and there, but it still helps. Probably 
that's the reason why. I, so put it this way: I don't have other people making decisions for me. I make the decision for what I think is best for me. Um, I take myself out of the equation and I look, you know, from a different perspective. Right? What's the best route for Eno Ahmed? What's with how I'm driving now? What is the best thing for me? Forget what Lander's doing. Forget what everyone else is doing. I really don't care. I have to do what's best for me. Um, and understanding that myself since I was 16, 15, um, that's what's made me um, um, more independent, you could say. Obviously, I have some advice from my dad, but my parents aren't in motor racing. So so it's no point really taking that much advice off my dad or stuff, really, if I'm honest. Uh, so I, I have to do it off the knowledge and experience I've got. But that's why, you know, I ask people. I, you know, I just go up to people, like, what do you think I should do next year? You know, I was talking to both Jacks. That we got with the C. I was like, oh, you know, what do you think? Like, what should I, what should I do? Because I'm genuinely want to know what you guys think. Um, you know, so it's mainly like me and Roberto, I suppose, that we're kind of understanding what we want to do. Um, but yes, just me. Um, nowadays in motorsport, there's a lot of managers that get paid to do nothing. I'm waiting for the right manager at the right time, and then yeah, that's good. I don't, I, don't, I feel like I could do more myself and not pay them the money. Yeah. Well, that sort of attitude, I think, and approach seems to be serving you very well. So good luck with whatever you choose to do next year and for the, and for the future. And thanks for giving us a, an insight into what it's like to be a, a successful driver at that level. Oh, well, well I'm, I'm successful at a national level, but um, the next big challenge and assault will be the European level. So um, that, that's my next big challenge. So I'm just keeping my head down and trying to get ready for that. So um, maybe we'll talk after that and we'll see how I go. Then I'll give you an update. I'll either be P20 or maybe P4, P1. <laughs> exactly. Well, good luck for the future. And thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was really a lot of fun. Well, now on to the second part of our podcast. We've had a little bit of a change of personnel. Jack Benyon is still with us. But joining us now, we have first Stephen Lickerish, junior journalist of Motorsport News. Now, Stephen, obviously, you've been also keeping an eye on junior single-seaters as well as tin tops and all sorts of things. Absolutely. There's quite a lot happening at the moment. Obviously, we're getting towards the crucial end of the, the season where championship battles being decided obviously Enam's already wrapped up the F3 title but in British F4 it's looking very close as well and also joining us is Stefan Mackley junior journalist of Motorsport News also part of Autosports Group National Empire as is Stephen Licorice it's all very complicated so everybody has multiple job titles now obviously you've followed the end of the the BRDC British F3 season we've just been speaking to to Enam what do you make of him? I think um obviously based on this season he's 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 dominated really. I think he's taken twelve wins um from the races so far. Um but it's not just him who's who's impressed in the series, there's lots of other drivers as well. Toby Sowery, um obviously currently second in the standings, he's he's pushed him quite hard this year and um James Pull as well, his Carlin teammate, um hasn't managed to get a, w- a win yet, but he's been on the podium I think over over ten times. So there's lots of young, you know, great talent coming through the, the ranks. Let's have a look at British F four. Jamie Caroline, pretty close to winning the title. He may well seal it in this weekend's race at Silverstone. Yeah, it'd be quite surprising if, if Jamie doesn't seal it this weekend because at the moment he's got a 74.5 point lead and he needs to be leading by 75 points coming away from the weekend. So he's in a really good position to, to wrap it up. Similar to Enam in a way, he's really been the, the sort of dominant force this year. Again, another Carlin driver and he's put in some really impressive performances especially at the start of the year some brilliant overtakes thruston springs to mind for that and overall he's another driver who's had a really strong season i think looking at um, looking at caroline Stephen, we're really privileged on the podcast to have you here because you've covered last year's f4 championship and and this one as well so you've kind of had 
two years of, of looking at the F4 Championship now. How much of this is is Caroline getting better as a driver and, and really improving with his team and, and really reaching that kind of maximum level? And how much of it is the opposition, do you think? Do you think we've got a similar level of standard of talent in the series or has is, is that decreased slightly this year? Or how do you feel about how it's sort of played out? Caroline has a massive advantage of being the only one of the drivers in title contention who was in the series last year. So he's got that year, well, year and a half now un- under his belt, whereas all the other drivers are new to the series this year. And so they've all had to go through that initial learning phase, which is why Caroline was so strong, particularly at the start of the year. Uh, and now they're sort of closing that gap to where he is. Um, but I think they are still very strong drivers, but Caroline had that sort of advantage when it really mattered at the start of the year. And that's what's given him this massive points lead, really. Is there anything else on the BTCC support bill we should be looking out for? Obviously, there's a few other champions that can be crowned. But the Janetta Junior Championship looks like the most interesting one. Yeah, because the Clear Cup looks like it's one that's going to be crowned this weekend with Mike Bushell. But Juniors, like you say, Ed, is really close at the moment between three drivers, uh, Tom Gamble, Seb Prio and Dan Harper. I'd just like to say you're making me feel old at the moment because that's the second driver you've talked about whose dad I've covered at Sensory Racing, as well as covering Andy Prio uh, in various categories. I also covered Lee Caroline when he was dominating in TVR Tuscans, another very good driver. So thanks for making me feel very aged. No problem, Ed. <laughs> but all of them have clearly inherited their, their father's motorsport genes, really, because they're, they're both really, really good drivers. Um, in terms of Prio and Gamble, it's an interesting situation. It's obviously the, the championship was sort of almost, in a way, blown wide open with the, the news a few weeks ago now that JHR had been suspended from Janetta Series. Um, both Gamble and Prio had been at JHR. Now they're at different teams. So Prio's at HHC, whereas Gamble's at Elite. So they've gone from being teammates fighting for the title to not being teammates and still fighting for the title. So that has changed the dynamic there. And someone who's sort of been creeping up all the time is Dan Harper with the Douglas team. So you've got three drivers who've all got a good amount of experience in the series who are really quite well matched fighting it out so it should be a really interesting conclusion to the to the season and also in the the single seater world formula ford 1600 is is still thriving there's ties obviously with road to indy in the us in terms of trying to make it a viable kind of junior pathway i guess so how's that coming on um, I think it's coming on really well, and I think because of the road to Indy, the the grids certainly for the national championship in the UK have um, have grown over the last couple of years. Really, um, I think a lot of drivers are, are seeing it as a, a fantastic stepping stone um, to get on board with. One thing that I've noticed actually over this last year is that um, championships at local circuits, so for example, uh, for example, Castle Coombe, um, their grid sizes have actually dropped a little. Um, so I don't know if the two are perhaps. Um, linked because of the, the road to Indy and the fact that the national grids are becoming quite a bit bigger. I mean, you're getting well over 30 cars every every race, really, which is fantastic. You know, the racing's close. It's I like to call it pure racing, no wings, slipstreaming, and, and the races are fantastic to watch. Formula Ford 600 is one of those many championships, isn't it, that goes into the shootout to get subsidised to go and do US Formula 2000. Obviously, we should say the road to Indy is USF 2000. Pro Mazda, I was going to call it Star Mazda, which it used to be, and then Indy Lights, and then yeah, you're up to IndyCar. Yeah, if you you know if you're looking at um, if you're looking at Europe, you know we've we've had the you know we've had Inam Ahmed come on and tell us how difficult it is to know where to go, and you know you're raising budget to go and do different championships. You don't know if it's going to be the right choice. Over in America, it's very sort of regimented in what you do. So you've got USF 2000 at the bottom, which 
um, is is again Tata Chassis, like the the British F3 use quite a similar kind of championship. Uh, and then you've got Pro Mazda who are having a new car next year, which is going to be a little bit of a step up from that. And then Indy Lights and, and IndyCar, as you say. So it's a very regimented process. And what Mazda do in their Road to Indy is they fund each level for, for each champion. So if you go into USF 2000 and win the championship, you then win the money to do Pro Mazda the next year and you go up and up and up with the budget to do it. So we've seen drivers like Spencer Piggott get to IndyCar through doing various realms of the of the road to Indy ladder um, and it's it's really good the shootout was launched last year and I, I was lucky enough to go over to Laguna Seca and to, to see some of the guys and, and what they were up to out there and how they were how were the, how they were chosen so um, this this champions picked from all over the world um, probably important to stress that they're not just uh, Mazda powered championships you know like we just talked about Formula Ford 1600 um, Mazda doesn't sort of hold anything against those guys who are doing Ford championships they still go into the into the shootout um, we were lucky enough to have three guys go over last year we had Neil McLennan who won the Scottish Formula 4 championship he went over and we had Niall Murray Irishman who, who absolutely dominated Formula 4 last year and then we also had Ollie White as well who won the Super Series so those three guys were really impressed while they were over there and were very good not quite good enough to beat Oliver Askew who eventually won the scholarship and then actually went on to win the USF 2000 championship last weekend but I think the, the you know the key point to get across is if you you know we're looking at people like Ian Amu who've spent a lot of money to do British F3 not quite sure where to go with that sort of where, where, what championship to do next if you like um, and then you know if you go into Formula 4 1600 obviously it's a very competitive championship but if you can win that you've got a chance to go and win 200,000 or 180,000 pounds um, towards your USF 2000 budget so it really gives you that regimented step up and a, a real help in doing that next step up as well. Obviously all of you are dealing with very junior single-seater drivers if you want to put it that way F4 level BRDC British F3 FF1600 and for all of the the complaints about how hard it is to get to the top level in F1, and it should be noted there is a professional racing world outside of Formula One that's quite quite large. There do seem to be routes for good drivers who don't have infinite money to actually to actually make progress. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that um, you know we, we, when young drivers are starting out, you know, F1 probably is the pinnacle for nearly all of them. Um, but with only you know twenty seats on the grid, and you're going to have to have a hell of a budget to to get even close to to getting on that grid or be the max verstappen. Even you know even then, it's very very unlikely. So yeah, you've got to look at different avenues, whether that's sports cars. I know that um, for example, Toby Sauer, he's um, he's obviously been racing single seats, but he's been doing the Lamborghini Super Trofeo as well, um, and, and maybe that's a route for him in the future. You know, um, GT cars, um, and as well, obviously with with this, you know, America, there's great opportunities over there um, and with this road to Indy it is as, as, as Jack said a, a stepping ladder um, you know if you win that there is a logical next step for you to go to and, and eventually you know IndyCar and you know the Indy 500 you know is a is a realistic goal so I think that um, you know for, for young drivers out there who are thinking you know we want to get to Formula 1 there are plenty of other successful career paths they can take within motorsport it's not just about Formula 1. I think on the you know talking about the the GT path that we you know we've spoke a little bit about there there's a lot of drivers who sort of reach the the top level of single seaters or as, as maybe not the top level but the highest level that they can reach and then they look at doing more GT stuff with maybe an amateur driver paying the budget for them to do that which is obviously how they earn a living um we're seeing elements of, of GT racing growing in the UK I'd say I think we've you know we've had the LMP3 championship this year a uh, brand new championship with with prototype cars at a, you know what they would call a relatively acceptable cost um it's had varying fortunes you know the, the last round we had five cars sort of entered so um the, the grid sizes have dropped but i think there's a number of reasons for that and um, i'm sure we'll talk about more about those in a second um but they're, they're they're 
championships already decided so we're coming up to, to Donington this weekend which will be their final round and with the championship decided the main sort of focus is on the on the prize drive which they offered out so that'll be with United Autosport in a car with Chris Hoy um, so it's going to be good to see how Sandy Mitchell known through through British GT and various other championships to see how, how good he gets on but the, I think the championship on the whole has got a fair way to go next year now to, to kind of re-establish itself and, and really prove it can it can work I think some of the major things we've talked about is um, it uses Pirelli tyres, which is different to all the other LMP3 championships that are out there. They all use Michelins. So any chance of getting sort of uh, European teams using um, rounds like Spa to test were, were ruled out because they, there's no point in them testing on a on a tyre that isn't relevant to them. Um, and we've also had the fact that uh, at the start of the year it was uh, necessary to have a bronze and a silver driver in each pairing. So obviously each GT driver is ranked by the FIA. It was necessary to have a bronze and a silver, whereas now they've opened that up very recently to be um, open to silver-silver pairings as well. So next year um, they've got the option to change the tyres, I suppose, if they if they wanted to go down that route. But also we've got time to see this silver-silver sort of situation play out and whether that's going to bring more drivers in because it's going to hopefully open things up for them. Yeah, it's still very early days with that championship. And it, what's the good thing is, is they're making these changes to try and boost the numbers. And they're obviously going in, in the right direction with that. Um, and it's key that they sort of continue to do that, really, and ensure that the championship does have a, a bright future. I think the thing with the, with the bronze drivers is that they move up very quickly, don't they? So trying to trying to necessitate that each sort of pairing has a, has a bronze driver means it sort of it lowers the the number of drivers that they actually have at hand to to choose from and when you when you're looking at the fact that most of the bronze drivers fund the cars that are competing in the championship then it, that can be very difficult for teams to bring in drivers and necessitate that they've got a certain driver in their lineup whereas if you open it up more like they have done to the silver silver drivers then you take a pit stop penalty but you, you it's easier to find drivers from from all around the world you're not sort of restricted in the numbers that you've got to choose from so hopefully next year that'll open that up for them one other interesting thing we've got on the horizon is TCR, the UK series being created. Obviously, this was a a global touring car formula created a few years ago. There's an international series that's occasionally appeared on the F1 support bill, and there's a multitude of championships all over the place. And there's a lot of people involved in it who used to be involved in world touring cars in its in its pomp. TCR is interesting because you've got quite low cost cars there, significantly cheaper than BTCC cars. So the running budget is going to be lower. And there's a lot of questions about how a TCR UK championship, provided it does get interest and properly get off the ground, how it, whether it could become an alternative to BCCC. Will people be moving into it from it? And will championships like Clio Cup suffer? Because we haven't had a championship at that sort of level, sort of sitting between the one-make ones and then the, the BCCC. They used to have things like the National Saloon Car Cup, that kind of thing, the, the sort of production-based racing kind of thing and now we've got that back so is that going to change the landscape or is it still a question of having the potential to if people go for it i think it's a really interesting development it's completely sort of shaking everything up in a way but i think there's still the need for championships like the clear cup like you mentioned and mini challenge and series like that because you're not you won't want to go straight in to a tcr car out of carts for example or out even out of single seaters necessarily because it is a completely different route. So I think it's it's interesting to see where exactly where it fits in with that. I still don't think we really know at the moment. It's still really early days. But whether it sort of encourages drivers to spend less time in, say, the Clear Cup, perhaps one year, and then move on to TCR, whereas in the past they might have spent two or three years, it could be that sort of 
decision that's been made by drivers. The big thing it will do is give drivers the chance to race in a top-level touring car that don't have the money to do the BTC. Um, so it's really interesting to see how it sort of fits in into that gap. Do we know what kind of form it's going to take? Obviously, there's all sorts of positives about it in terms of the the cost of the cars are capped, etc. So it it should keep the costs under control. But where's it going to run? Where's it going to fit in? Is it just going to meld into the background as just another series that exists? Is there going to be a way to make it relevant to people? Because obviously, if you want to take the argument of is it going to take on the BTCC, the BTCC is is massive in terms of the the commercial value of it. It's almost the only show in town in terms of actually getting some real sponsorship in. It's easy to say it could take it on, but there's reasons why the BTCC is so strong, and they're not going to go away. We, I think you just kind of answered your own question in it in a way that I, I think. Do that. Yeah, I think um, looking at TCR at least initially, it's not going to be a rival to the British Touring Car Championship, in my opinion. And if you want to gauge how strong a national championship is, you can usually do that by seeing how many people come back year on year. And with the British Touring Car Championship, we get a lot of the same contenders coming back every year, if not all of them. Uh, and, you know, there's a, there's the odd ringer who comes in and shakes things up every now and again, but the majority of the grid is the same and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Um, what TCR will do, as Stephen said, is offer drivers a chance to do a top-level touring car championship at a lower cost. Um, what it also does for me is give teams more flexibility. Um, I think you'll see a lot, as we've already known about and, and discussed, that there's, uh, there's, there's teams from the British Drawing Card Championship who have confirmed interest in TCR. Um, what I mean by giving them more flexibility is the fact that the TCR regs are pretty much the same in every country. There's a chance to go and race your car in Asia, on the continent, Europe, you know, anywhere. There's, there's, there's TCR races going on, you know, three or four times a month. Um, so it's really going to give those teams a chance to hire out those cars, rent those cars and go and do those championships if they've got a, a paying driver to do it, which is one of the great things about TCR. You know, with a with the current British touring car, you're not going to be able to take that and, and compete with that in any meaningful championship anywhere else. Whereas obviously with these TCR cars, the teams and the drivers, if they own the car, you know, whoever it actually is, has got the chance to sort of reinvest their money by renting these cars out. And as you said, the costs are capped. So theoretically, as a you know, as a, as a business point of view, this is a you know a very sensible championship, and it, it should it should take off very quickly. And we've seen places like Germany, um, not a massive entry in their first year, but 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 now they've got sort of well over thirty cars every single round. Um, and we've seen Josh Files out there, a, a Brit who I think he would admit failed to reach touring cars, didn't have the budget. Um, was very good in Clio's but you know just didn't quite have the budget to make that extra step and if TCR had been here when he was around you know he very well might have gone into that TCR championship and ended up competing where he is now anyway Um, but the you know at a national level it's proven places like Germany it's got a very strong entry now Um, so there's no reason why the UK can't follow and if you're a you know if you're a European driver if you're an Asian driver you know, why would you not come and want to sample some of the, the brilliant tracks in the UK? Because you know, I think we can all agree that the UK does have some of the best tracks in the world. Why would you not want to come? And even if you, even if you've got ringers who are doing two or three meetings a year, you know, it's still, um, it's still really interesting. And just finally, just to conclude from one of your other questions, we think it's going to be six to seven rounds. There was some talk about it supporting British GT, but that's been that's been canned now, and it's going to have its own billing. I think most of that is down to the fact that um, although the series probably wouldn't admit this, I think. They think they're going to get so many entries that the grid sizes in the UK just aren't going to support being a support series because with supporting British GT, if there's a reduction in track time, TCR are, you know, 
are one of the support acts, they're at risk of losing some of their track time. Whereas if they run their own billing and they're the top billing, they're not going to be worried about losing any track time and it'll be the other championships that suffer from that. So I think, and and of course the grid sizes, they will potentially need to have two races as a, as a final if they're going to have as many cars as they think they're going to have. So obviously that's um, that's all in the future and we don't know exactly how many cars we're going to have. People can say they're interested, but we're only going to know at the first round next year how many cars actually turn up. I think there's a few reasons to be confident in it, isn't there? Because not only TCR in the wider context, Marcello Lotti is the man behind it. He used to run World Touring Cars. He's a serious player. The UK promoter is Jonathan Ashman, who's a name that's well-known in the sport, but not maybe known outside of it, but used to be head of the FI's Touring Car Commission. He had a hand in the rise of Super Touring, which in fact, in some ways, TCR is trying to recreate that Super Touring formula in terms of the way it can spread so quickly and try and do that but without the cars getting out of control so it's it's one of those things I imagine that if you're a race team you'd look at it pretty seriously as something that that can happen because new championships are at 10 a penny there's always somebody pitching some championship I can I've seen thousands of which a small percentage have happened but I always look at the people who are behind it someone like Jonathan Ashman does know what he's doing yeah, just um, just to add on to what Jack said, um, obviously there's a few things that we, we don't know um, at the minute and we'll have to wait till, till the first race next year. And I think um, a lot of it's going to come down to the actual sizes of the grid, but from you know from who we've spoken to so far it sounds as though it's going to get a good good field um j- just it's a good t- field you sort of thinking 20 cars maybe yeah I, I think so yeah i mean i think that the last indication we got was that 27 teams were, were kind of looking at it seriously a mix of um people from btcc and and clio cup as well um and i think that having those two series looking at or teams within that series i think in terms of the budget i think it fits kind of nicely between clio cup and btcc so obviously we're saying that will it threaten the btcc you know maybe in five years it might but for the time being i think it's a a really good kind of stepping stone in the middle between both of them um obviously you mentioned josh files didn't quite have the budget maybe to to go you know higher than um than than tcr so having tcr is a is you know i think for a lot of drivers you know on a budget i think is a is a great option for them and um obviously as we know from across europe with you know where it's in germany and how it's increased there i think that you know it's a real series that's going to do really well in the uk one thing that is also good about this is the fact that tcr is a proven format to a certain extent although it is relatively new We've seen how many entries the the international series has been getting, and we've seen how many entries the the, the likes of the you know, we've mentioned it hundreds of times the German series is is you know because that is the perfect example of how this can grow so quickly. Um, but yeah, the re- the reason why I think teams are getting excited about this and why I think we can have a bit more confidence in this than maybe some other startup championships is the fact that the formula is proven and there is a clear gap there. You know, it's not it's not difficult to see that that gap is there, that that budget. You know, Files is a perfect example of the person who didn't reach touring cars but has still got enough money to do motorsport at a good level. So I think, whereas, you know, we've talked about a bit about the plight of the LMP3 championship and, and what they've gone through this year, that is effectively a trailblazing championship. There's not many, if any, national LMP3 championships out there. You know, there's the Mich- Michelin a cup series that goes towards Le Mans but there's not a proper national championship for LMP3 cars so they're blazing the trail whereas the TCR UK championship you know we've got a proven formula um, that has been run multiple times in lots of different countries different continents and you know is proven so I think you can get a little bit excited about it and and, and look forward to some of the guys are going to have it 
especially if you get guys like Ash Sutton who's confirmed interest and in, you know doing so well in the British Touring Car Championship at the minute. So you know there's potential that we could have some proper drivers doing some some really cool stuff in TCR cars next year. And it, you know if it does get its own billing, could be quite exciting to watch. And when you get a formula that works well, it it does spread because when TCR was launched, I was at the first race of TCR, which is Sepang in 2015 the international series the first tcr race that was held and they said well britain's not really one we're going after because there's a mature established touring car series so that their sort of market was to go into countries because a lot of national touring car series over the past 10 15 years have, have vanished it's astonishing but this has actually been a way to to revitalize them but the fact that it's kind of it's finding a foothold in a in a country that wasn't really an objective says that you know it's a it's a fundamentally attractive rules package I think building on my point from before, and you know, maybe this is quite an interesting thing to consider that some people are comparing this to British touring cars, and I think that's the completely wrong way to look at it because I don't think it is a genuine rival, not at least to start with anyway. But the interesting thing is you could actually get touring cars eventually supporting this because what it's doing is it's allowing some of the teams like that we've seen who are interested like Motorbase, they can they can make money out of this TCR series and then throw more money into their British drawing car programs and make their British drawing car programs safer than than what they are now because they're bringing more money in. So potentially, you know, this could actually be a good thing for the British touring car championship as well, which is completely ironic in the sense that most people are discussing this. Uh, you know, people like Joss Files have said, you know, eventually he sees the British touring car championship failing and TCR taking over. Um, for, for me, I think ironically, behind the scenes, British Touring Car Championship could be quite happy about this because it's given some of their teams a way to earn more money to put into their championship. It also gives the drivers that are looking to move up um, to British Touring Car Championship a good boost because those teams can work with the drivers from a from a younger age. They can build those relationships, and it will help them sort of moving forwards. So I think, in terms of like the teams and the drivers, it can be a, a really good thing for them. I think ultimately any good sustainable championship that has a good business basis is good for motorsport as a whole. And so the whole BTCC, VTCR thing, I think I agree with you. It's a it's a little bit it's an easy thing to hook onto, but actually it's that's something if at all, it's for down the line. But this is about another championship in the UK that is good for teams, good for drivers, and that's that's good for everyone. And I think the organisers have gone about it in the right way in putting it on its own billing rather than it being as part of British GT package say for example because to attract the teams and drivers to this series it shouldn't be seen as a support series to anything so it should be at the top of its billing on its own package rather than uh, playing second fiddle to to something else on on a different package. So we hope you've enjoyed our first Club Autosport podcast in association with Motorsport News. So it's been great to hear from Inam Ahmed about his BRDC British F3 success. And thanks also to Jack Benyon, Stephen Licorice, Jack Cousins and Stefan Mackley for their insights and their comments on the way of things. We're hoping to do a few more of these over the time. You might see one of these these sort of podcasts cropping up every month or so in this feed. So, uh, so we hope you enjoy them. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Just Because deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast from Mickey D's. From me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. You don't need a reason when the one and only hot and melty sausage McMuffin with egg is just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.